our final stop on the Wesleyan order or way of salvation. Today we're going to talk about sanctifying grace. We talked about prevenient grace, that grace that God bestows upon us that empowers us to respond to his call. It overcomes the worst effects of our depravity. We talked about convicting grace, God's helping us to see who we are, to see the condition that we're in, to see our need for salvation. That should issue forth in repentance. And then we talked about justifying grace last time. Justifying grace, we said, was what Wesley characterized as the point where the serious work of transformation begins, not the point at which it concludes. Now, if we go back to the metaphor of the house that we've talked about, prevenient grace, you know, is uh, before we get to the house. Convicting grace is the porch of salvation, he said. Justifying grace is the doorway. It allows us to enter the house. But sanctifying grace is what enables us to live in the house. So let's spend a little time talking about this notion of sanctifying grace. It's one that I th think doesn't get anywhere near enough attention. And yet, as I'll show you in a few minutes, it's one that Wesley took to be very critical to understanding God's work in transforming us into the people that he intends us to be. It's the second work of grace, this uh, um, entire sanctification. It's often talked about in those sorts of terms. Now there's a big debate about whether this second work of grace is instantaneous or progressive. That's not a debate we have the time or inclination to take on today. We simply note that it's a second work of grace. It's a deeper work of grace, perhaps is even a better way to say it, because it where we exercise faith in Christ and we're justified, as Wesley said, that begins the serious work. And then when we respond to God's offer of sanctifying grace, that's when we get to be seriously transformed into the image of Christ. He says, <coughs> excuse me, that at the, the moment of sanctification, we are empowered to love God with our whole hearts and our neighbors as ourselves. In other words, we're empowered to live out those two great commandments through the presence of sanctifying grace in our lives. Entire sanctification is a phrase that Wesley often used to talk about it. It's one that we hear bandied about, and unfortunately, I'm afraid that by wording it that particular way, a lot of misconceptions get attached to the idea of sanctification. Wesley didn't mean to say that we became perfect. I've heard some people ridicule the notion of entire sanctification, and they'll say something like, well, you Wesleyans think that you can become perfect. Well, Wesley did use the word perfect. He talked about Christian perfection, but he, there were some serious caveats about how he understood that. I actually think Colin, Colin Williams gets at this reasonably well in his book, John Wesley's Theology for Today, when he said that Wesley had to have a notion of perfection that was imperfect. He called it an imperfect perfection. Now what he meant by that is that Wesley never said that in the process of entire sanctification that we cease to be human. We're still finite humans. We still have limited knowledge. We still make mistakes. We still overlook things. So the possibility of error, in fact the inevitability of error perhaps, even in the life of a sanctified person is something that we have to recognize and deal with. So when Wesley talked about Christian perfection, when we talk about the doctrine of entire sanctification, we're not talking about you know, becoming angelic or becoming perfect in the sense of never making a mistake. What we are talking about, though, is getting to the point that in our loving of God with our whole heart and our neighbors as ourselves, our wills are so purified at this point that we don't intentionally sin. 
We don't choose to do things that we know God doesn't want us to do. So sanctification then begins to unite faith and works. Or perhaps a better way to say it is that sanctification is the sanctifying grace of God active in our life is what empowers us to then to begin to live the life that pleases God. That's why Wesley talked about it again on the metaphor of the house. Sanctification is living in the house. It's living out the life that pleases God. It isn't just being justified. It isn't just having exercised faith in God. But it's actually beginning to see the faith that we've exercised in God begin to pour itself out in the way that we interact with those around us, the love that we have for God, the way we sacrifice ourselves for those in need around us. Now, it's an interesting thing. We often get into this discussion about whether works are necessary for salvation. And of course, many within the broader Christian tradition uh, are uncomfortable with even talking about that sort of thing. It sounds like we're slipping into a works-oriented salvation where we're saved by our works. Well, let's be clear. Wesley believes that justification comes through faith in Christ and Christ alone. If you go back and read his Aldersgate experience, that's the kind of language that he uses. I believe in Christ and Christ alone uh, for my salvation. But you know what? Even in, in that context, if you ask Wesley, are works necessary for salvation? His answer to that question is yes. But he says that they're conditionally required. Okay, let's take a step back and think about this for a second. When you think about the two components for salvation, faith and works, Wesley says that faith is unconditionally required. That is, every person who's going to be restored to right relationship with God has to do that through faith in Christ. So faith is not an option. It's an unconditional requirement for salvation. But he goes on to say that works are a conditional requirement for salvation. So what are the conditions? There are two. Time and opportunity. When we're saved by God, as long as we have opportunity, that is after our initial justification, if we have the opportunity to do good works, then they are expected. If we have the time to do good works. Now, Wesley recognized that there would be cases where that wouldn't happen, that someone might, in fact, undergo conversion on their deathbed, and then the time and opportunity for doing good works wouldn't be there. But in fact, in the vast majority of our lives, there are both time and opportunity to live out the life of faith and to have it issue forth in, the, in works that are pleasing to God. You can read in Wesley and find the kinds of things that he had in mind uh, for that, but I think it undergirds his notion when he says there is no holiness apart from social holiness. What he meant by that, I believe, is that these works that are expected of us as saved people, in fact, changes the societies that we're a part of. First of all, it changes is that little society that is our own family. And then it changes the societies that we're a part of in local communities as we begin to live out the life of faith. And then on and on it has ripple effects. And you can see even in Wesley's day how his own life of faith, faithfulness to the gospel resulted in big changes in the country in which he lived. Wesley said that the doctrine of entire sanctification, the doctrine of sanctification, the teaching about sanctification, this call to a full and complete transformation of life might have been the sole reason that God raised up the people called Methodists. Now that's worth pondering a little bit because in my own experience in teaching 
and preaching in uh, United Methodism, attention to sanctification is often very thin. I think it's something that we need to correct. We need to once again capture the vision of the importance of sanctifying grace to the overall order of salvation, to recognize that this full and complete transformation of life is what God's after. And the doctrine of entire sanctification, the doctrine of Christian perfection as Wesley understood it, is a way to get at that. Let me make one additional comment. I've looked at a number of demographic studies over the course of the last several years to try to look at the state of the church in the U.S. and around the world and what sorts of things we might do to see church renewal. Well, you know what? The demographic data say that the next generation, you know, those who are in the 19 to 40-ish sort of time window, age window right now, those folks are driven by a desire to change the world. They want to, their lives to mean something. And we Wesleyans with the doctrine of entire sanctification have the perfect theological underpinnings to be able to talk about what it means to be faithful followers of Jesus and transformers of the worlds in which we live. I challenge you to take every opportunity you have to ponder the doctrine of sanctification and to teach it to those around you.